Get Back to Basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Hi and welcome. Great to be with you this afternoon. A beautiful Wednesday afternoon here in the Highfield. Yes, uh, had been a little bit chilly. Seems to be warming up uh, a little bit and maybe we'll warm up even more in uh, speaking together and thinking together and in learning hopefully a few things that are important on Judaism 101.9. As um, I often like to do um, today, let's begin with where we are in Jewish history. In other words, let's take a look back at things that happened on this day in the history of our Jewish people. And I came across a few interesting ones. Number one is that um, in the second century, so going back um, almost 2,000 years, we have a terrible event that happened. It was the time of Roman occupation, remember? It was the time that the Romans were uh, carrying out their terrible and heinous uh, actions against all and sundry and particularly against the Jewish people. And we read on Yom Kippur about the execution in the most terrible way of what were known as the Ten Martyrs. The Ten Martyrs, all great sages, leaders of the Jewish people, um, we memorialize them, we speak about them in the Musaf prayer of uh, Yom Kippur, that's uh, kind of the time when you're feeling really, really hungry on Yom Kippur. Um, later on in the Musaf, um, we read about these ten martyrs. Now, three of them, Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, Rabbi Yishmol ben Elisha, Rabbi Hanina Skana Kohanim, all of them were actually killed on today, the 25th of Sivan in the second century. So if we were to go back, those couple of thousand years, that sadly is one of the tragic events of Jewish history that was happening today. There's something that is a lot lighter and a lot more exciting to talk about that happened today. In the fourth century before the Common Era, if we were to go back four centuries before the beginning of uh, the secular calendar, and uh, we take a look at an event that happened then, Although some say that this actually happened in the month of Nisan, the majority think that it actually happened and it's recorded in the Talmud and that it happened on the 25th day of Sivan. In other words, today is the anniversary of an event that sounds weird and wonderful and yet has such a powerful lead-in for what we want to speak about today. And that is that the Egyptian representatives or representatives of the then Egypt appeared before the court of Alexander the Great and they demanded that the Jews pay restitution for all the Egyptian gold and silver that they took with them during the Exodus. So could you imagine appearing in the court of Alexander the Great, Egyptian representatives came to the equivalent, I suppose, of the international court in The Hague. And they came before Alexander the Great and they demanded that the Jews pay restitution for all the gold and silver that they took when they left Egypt um, those uh, all those years before. Now, what happened next was an amazing thing. There was a man called Geviha, who was the son of Pesisa. He was a simple but a wise Jew. And he requested the sage's permission to present a defense on behalf of the Jews. Now, this sounds so anecdotal and it sounds so story-like that one cannot really 
fathom that this was actually true. Such an event happened. The Egyptians sued us in the international court for the gold and silver that was taken during the Exodus. And here, a man called Gavia, uh, the son of Pasisa, who was simple, but he was very, very clever, he requested permission to provide a defense. And so here, this new defense attorney on behalf of the Jewish people gets up and Gavia asks the Egyptians for evidence that the Jews absconded with their wealth. And what did they say? They said, your Torah records it. This crime is recorded by your own Torah. Why are you asking us for proof? You've got it in your Torah. Uh, Said Gavia, in that case, the Torah also says, that 600,000 Jews, in fact, the entire Jewish people, were unjustly enslaved by the Egyptians for many, many years. So I tell you what, let's first calculate how much you owe us for the unjust enslavement without compensation of our people for all those years that we were held slaves in Egypt. What then happened was that the international court in front of Alexander the Great granted the Egyptians three days on which to prepare a response. But sadly for them, they were unable to do so and they absconded. They vanished. <laughs> the court was uh, out looking for these um, claimants or uh, these um, um, appellants who came appealing in the court of international law against the Jewish people. They disappeared and they never returned. Now, in Talmudic times, the day when the Egyptian delegation fled, which was today, was celebrated as a mini chag, as a mini holiday. So if you're feeling a little bit of a hop and a skip and a jump in your step, um, today let's rather not focus on the death of martyrs under the Romans. Let's rather think about a very brilliant defense that Gavia came up on behalf, with, on behalf of the Jewish people and, um, the fact that the Egyptians actually fled on that particular date and we therefore were triumphant in the international court of law in front of Alexander the Great. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. So where did the Jewish people get their wisdom from? Where do we get to be so clever? And how does it all work? And what is this um, interesting focus that we have on education? You know, if you think about today in uh, the COVID world, in the world that um, has been turned upside down, possibly and probably the majority of people have been spending a tremendous amount of time thinking about education and not necessarily because of all the right reasons, but sometimes because of all the reasons that we'd like to get away from, uh, you know, kids at home and uh, having to study on uh, Zoom, on computers, on uh, different classroom chats and so on. And then the whole debate about getting back to school and which grades are going back to school and if they should be going back to school when uh, things seem to be spiking and so on. And all of these things surrounding education. Now, where did it all come from that Jews had this great wondrous and incredible hang-up on education. And do we have it all right? Are we all thinking about education in the correct way? Well, perhaps we became clever by education, but was that really the reason to start off with? 
if we go back and we think about what happened when we left Egypt, you know, when we left Egypt, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, through uh, as the servant of the Almighty, as the servant of God, made all sorts of pledges and promises to the Jewish people. Remember that the Jewish people were slaves. We were slaves in Egypt, slaves to a really, really hostile environment, slaves without religious or spiritual freedom. And one of the things that if we look at the history of many, many nations that um, nations tried to do, including, by the way, the Romans who we mentioned before, that they tried to do to all people who they didn't want to see rise up and overthrow them or become too dominant was that they deprived them of education. Yes, unfortunately, sadly, in the history of our own country, there was um, education deprivation that took place for a huge swathe of the um, of the society where people weren't entitled to education, where they weren't given an education, where they were deprived of an education. In fact, one of the things that um, uh, was regarded as a, uh, a punishment in times gone by in uh, prisons, for instance, was that people who had committed what was then deemed to be crimes against the state, political crimes, were deprived of books. They were deprived of the ability to read, to be, to be educated. So education was very often used as a tool, or let's call it the lack of education, was used as a tool and a means to suppress people. Um, perhaps this was the a throwback to the time that we were slaves in Egypt, where People were deprived of an education, and it was a thought-through plan, much more than it was just, well, we couldn't be bothered or you're too poor to be able to afford to go to school. The deprivation of education was something that was used as a tool to um, uh, be dominant over a certain people or over a great part of the populace or the population. Keeping people ignorant meant that they didn't rise up and they didn't become um, uh, unhappy with those who supposedly had a little bit more education, although perhaps they themselves were uncouth and and wild in uh, many, many ways and many regards. And uh, while we often talk about Roman civilization or uh, Babylonian civilization, it wasn't wasn't really civilized at all, but the concept of education and the depriving of education for people was regarded as a way whereby um, one group or perhaps an elite or perhaps a family, perhaps a king, perhaps all the king's horses and all the king's men were able to be dominant over a certain part of the population or a certain people um, that they had dominion over. And part of The thought-through plan was don't give them education. If we really think about, in uh, more modern terms, who is it who has risen up in uh, in recent times, in times gone by, and uh, risen up against um, tyrannical rulerships or tyrannical rulers or uh, regimes that need to be overthrown? It very often comes from the houses of learning, from places where students are studying, they see the light, they realize that what is going on around them is wrong, they realize that there's a deprivation of human rights, and therefore they rise up um, in a revolution. 
as was uh, sometimes uh, humorously put to the students, are revolting. The idea of student revolutions, of students rising up against uh, tyrannical regimes is something that we're used to. And why does it come about? Well, it comes about because with education comes a certain amount of emancipation. With education comes a questioning of what is right and what is wrong. And it is easier once you have the tools of education to be able to overcome the difficulties of the environment, of the surroundings, of the atmosphere, of the country, of the place that is oppressing and that is putting down many of its population. So the thought behind many, many tyrannical uh, regimes and rulerships was deprive people of education. Now, Moshe Rabbeinu, let's get back to where we began. Moshe Rabbeinu comes to the Jewish people and he promises them that we're going to get out of Egypt, we're going to get out of slavery, and we're going to be educated. Because think about what was the ultimate, God forbid to actually use the analogy, but what was the ultimate carrot that he dangled in front of them? What was the prize? What was the gift that they that we were going to be given? It was a Torah. And of course the people must have said, hey, but one second, we're illiterate, we can't read. And with that came the thrust and the thirst and the drive for education. Let's educate. Let's get the intelligence that we need and let's do it in a way whereby it is going to be through the annals of this incredible work, this God's magnum opus, the incredible work called the Torah. It is a guide for life. It is a way that you can not only become educated, but that you can live a godly life on earth. And this was the gift. This was the drive and this was the ideal that the Jewish people, as a nation, we were getting out of Egypt and we were going to shake off our slavery by becoming educated, by becoming emancipated through education or educated through emancipation. We were going to become Educated, We were going to become literate. We were going to understand everything that the Torah had to offer us by our reading, by our writing, by our skill sets that we were going to develop in order to become educated, in order to become knowledgeable in what it was that God wanted from us and particularly how we could live good, just, ethical, moral lives and how we could be great emissaries for God on earth and to make God's world into a place that is governed by those rules, governed by that Torah, governed by those principles that should be more prevalent than they are. And the job given to the Jewish people then was to do just that, to receive the Torah, to bring it into this world and to advertise it and make it the very, very uh, rhythm by which the world should be functioning to set that moral compass, to set that moral standard that the Jewish people um, needed to set for the entire world to be able to follow. And it's all encapsulated, by the way, in an obligation that is brought down to each and every one of us on a daily basis. Yes, uh, two or three times a day, morning and evening, we say in our prayer called the Shema, which is the best-known Jewish prayer of all, where we say, Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. We go on to talk about the loving of God with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our might, 
And we then say these things which I have commanded you today should be on your hearts. And then the shinantam levanecha. There is an obligation on you, on each and every one of you, on each and every one of us. The shinantam levanecha to teach them to your children. And to speak about them when you are sitting in your homes, and when you're going on your way, and when you lie down and when you stand up. The obligation to teach your children. There is an obligation to teach your children, not necessarily um, all the things of science, technology, mathematics, and so on, but there is an obligation to teach your children Torah. An obligation to teach your children about God. An absolute obligation on each and every individual. And we don't often think about it enough, I guess. And maybe one of the designs behind or one of the secret uh, gifts behind this whole COVID experience has been the fact that we have had to think about education. We've had to think about how we are teaching our children. Are we teaching our children well? Are we teaching them in the proper fashion, are they getting the right education? There were many, many different um, discussions that I certainly had with people over this period of time where you had the whole ambit, the whole range of different um, uh, words that you heard from parents along the way where some said they stand in awe and admiration of the teachers. It's uh, very difficult to um, teach a kid. It's very difficult to teach your children. And that's one of the reasons why parents are really gunning for every class to be open and for the kids to get back to school. It's much easier to appoint somebody else to do the job for you and make sure that they are teaching. And then you had some people who realized that um, perhaps the teaching that they had hoped that their children were getting wasn't Quite up to scratch. And then there were some who said, hey, one second. They happened to sit in or they happened to hear their uh, kid on a, uh, uh, on a Google classroom or whatever it was. And they realized that the education that they were getting from a Jewish point of view wasn't sufficient. And they started to question whether it's not time to think about a more in-depth Jewish education. But, uh, surprise, surprise, go all the way back to our daily prayers, our daily instruction, and a daily obligation that each and every one of us has, which is that we are obligated to teach our children Torah. We have to teach them Torah every single day. We have to teach them about God every single day. Now, yes, this doesn't always mean that you have to practically sit them down and say, now begins your lesson um, in Torah, and we're going to study from here to there, from the beginning of this book to the end of that paragraph to that chapter, etc., etc., which would be a wonderful thing if you could do it on a regular basis. But part of what we're obligated to do is to teach them just by the way you sit in your home, by the way you are at home, and by the way you are on the way, on the road, and how you go to sleep and how you get up. You know, kids learn a tremendous amount by the big thing that we don't often think of as being, or often enough think of as being the perfect way to teach your children, and that's by something called example. We need to set the example for our kids that they can follow, and kids imitate an example much more and much better than you 
ever imagine. Think about how children learn how to speak. They learn how to speak by imitation. Think about how they learn certain actions by imitation. Think about how they learn so much in their growth, in their development. It is imitation-based. It's example-based. And they learn much better by the examples that parents set for their children than anybody else. They get their accent from their parents. They get their emphasis from their parents. They get their... And their likes and their dislikes from their parents. And they learn the good, the bad, and the ugly from every nuance and every action and every involvement from their parents in their own lives and in the lives of their kids as well. And so, therefore, we need to teach our children well. We need to give them the right examples. We need to make sure that that we're teaching our children Torah on a regular basis. And that we make sure that our examples are examples that they can follow. And we've had a great learning curve during this period of time to realize just how important teaching of children and teaching them Torah and giving them the right value system and the right moral and ethical foundation, um, how important it actually is in their development and in their lives that lie ahead. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. So the obligation to teach your children and to teach them well and to teach them Torah is something that is an obligation that sits fairly and squarely on the shoulders of each and every one of us. Each and every parent has that obligation. Now, sometimes we can hire teachers to do that. And here... Torah is very, very specific in what kind of teachers we should be hiring to teach our children well. Well, first of all, we need to to see that there is a morality and there is an ethic and there is a Torah uh, value that is within those teachers. You cannot have teachers teaching your children Torah or anything to do with Judaism where they themselves are not living up to that standard. Uh, teaching of Torah and teaching Judaism is not something that can be done as a subject in school, just like any other subject. You know, in order to teach a child science, you don't have to be a scientist. In order to teach a child biology, you don't have to be a biologist in order to teach a child and any other subject. One doesn't have to actually live that subject. Teaching Torah, the Torah obligation is that the teacher has to live the subject. The teacher has to be the example, because remember, it's in loco parente. It's in place of the parent. Remember that the parent has to employ or goes out of his way or her way to employ someone to be in their stead in the teaching dimension of teaching Torah. It's got to be someone who lives up to every nuance and everything possible in the Torah, in Torah values. And of course, if the teachers aren't living up to it, well, it's time to get a new teacher. It's time to find yourself a, a school or an environment where your children are learning Torah in an authentic fashion. It cannot be compromised because the kids pick up on the compromise. The kids pick up on the double standard. The kids pick up on the fact that the teacher is saying one thing and doing something else or perhaps um, giving the Torah value in a watered-down way to suit their particular um, nuanced approach that the teacher themselves has adopted and therefore passes on, unfortunately, to the children. So one has to make sure that the teachers 
are the living examples that we are paying for and that we're hiring in order to teach our children authentic Torah. How do we make sure that the kids are getting authentic Jewish education? And perhaps here to borrow from some of our sages, some of the things that would show you or would be able to be an example or a living uh, proof of the fact that your child is getting a good Jewish education. And perhaps they're not the uh, things that you often would think about, but um, they are very profound and very important. And let's go through just a few of them. Number one is, does your child show kindness towards others? It's not a, a, a foolproof uh, thing that if the child shows kindness towards others, that he is definitely getting a good Jewish education. But it is certainly a good proof of the fact that something is filtering through, that it's not just lip service. If he he or she shows kindness towards others, there is a good Torah value there. And does he display a fear of heaven? Is there truly a fear of God, of uh, the power of the Almighty, of an understanding of the fact that there is a being that is greater than us, that has dominion over life, death, and everything, and then some in the child's life? If that is there, um, you are on your road to understanding or to seeing that your child is getting a good Jewish education. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. So our sages have given us a five-point test, perhaps, to um, be able to check um, on the kind of Jewish education that your children are getting. The first two we mentioned just before the break, does your child show kindness towards others? If you can tick that box, well, then you are well on the way to understanding or to seeing or to realizing the benefits, the fruits of a good Jewish education, a Torah education. Does he, uh, does his face display the fear of heaven? Does his face display the fear of heaven? You know, very often if you look into the face, not only of a child, but of an adult, you can see something spiritual within a face. Face reflects the word panim, which means a face reflects the panim, that which is inside. Does the child respect the Torah and stand in awe of it? Is there a perhaps a cynical approach to Torah? Are we trying to unpack the Torah or trying to trip it up or trying to find fault with it or trying to um, delve into the things in Torah that um, are not necessarily there for us to delve into rather than just learning the lessons? Do we respect it and stand in awe of it? If he does, great. You can check that box too. Does a child feel instinctively close to every other Jew? So, you know, very often... We think about people who are close to us and we say, well, we're close to them and that's good enough. But is there a feeling of sympathy, of empathy, of connection with Jews all over the world? And finally, is there an authentic love for the Holy Land of Israel? And do we yearn to be there even if that is from afar? Is there a yearning to be part of uh, Am Yisrael, part of uh, the Land of Israel, part of the holiness that comes with all of that. And if you can check those boxes, well, you are probably then well on the road to raising a Jewish child who has the 
certainly the qualifications um, or seemingly has passed the test of receiving a good Jewish education. Please, God, we should be able to educate our children well. We should be able to teach them Torah in the most beautiful fashion possible. And most importantly, by living the example of how we are at home and how we are when we're on the road, how we lie down, how we stand up, how we behave at home, all of those things paramount in the Shinantam Devanecha, in teaching our children well. I want to wish you a great rest of the week, a great Shabbat up ahead. Remember, it is Shabbat Mavarachim. We bless the new month of Tammuz. Rosh Chodesh is next week on Monday and Tuesday. Please, God, we'll chat to you again next week on Wednesday um, on Judaism 101.9.